truly an honor to fill Pastor Rogers' pulpit while he is away, and I trust that what I share with you this morning would be a blessing to each one of you and also glorifying to God and to our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning I would like to share with you the stories of uh, two men. Both of these men came into the house of God. Both of them experienced the presence of God. And both of their lives were transformed as a result of their encounter with God. But one life was transformed for the worse, and the other was transformed for the better. And as we consider their stories this morning, I want to do so keeping in mind the overarching question, what does it mean to be in the presence of God? What does it mean to be in the presence of God? If you have your Bibles, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 26 is where we find the first story. Second Chronicles chapter 26. And our main character in this story is a man by the name of Uzziah. Second Chronicles chapter 26, if you don't know where Second Chronicles is, it's right after First Chronicles. <laughs> if you don't know where that is, I can't help you. But seriously, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, and we're going to pick up in verse 3. And we read in verse 3, we're introduced to this character. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. That's longer than the reign of what we might think of as Israel's greatest king, that is King David. So this man Uzziah, 16 years old, he becomes king, and he has a long reign, 52 years. But what's special about Uzziah is not just that he became a king when he was so young, not just that he reigned for 52 years, but as the saying goes, everything this king touched seemed to turn to gold. Look at verse 4. He, that is Uzziah, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Verse 5, he sought God. The end of verse 5, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And the remaining verses tell us exactly how God made him prosper. Verses 6 through 8 talk about his military conquests. Verse 6, he went out and made war against the Philistines, the arch enemy of the Israelites. He broke down the wall of Gath, the wall of Jabneh, the wall of Ashdod. He built cities around Ashdod and among the Philistines. Verse 7, God helped him against the Philistines, against the Arabians, and against the Munites. Verse 8, also the Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for he became exceedingly strong. More of his military exploits starting in verse 13. And he had an army of 307,500 that made war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. Verse 14, Then Uzziah prepared for them for the entire army, shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows and slings. Verse 15, And he made devices in Jerusalem, that's military devices, invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. So when you think of a king, especially in those days, a king's might, a king's reputation was defined by their military conquests. And Uzziah is right up there in terms of all the things he was able to accomplish in terms of conquering his enemies. But Uzziah wasn't just one who was known for his military conquests. 
Look at verses 9 and 10. He also had exploits in terms of infrastructure and agriculture and livestock. Second Chronicles 26 and verse 9. And Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem. We had read in verse 6, he built cities. Verse 10, he built towers in the desert. He dug many wells, for he had much livestock, both in the lowlands and in the plains. He also had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains, for he loved the soil. So military conquests, infrastructure, agriculture, animals, you name it, this king had it. And look at the phrases that are used to describe the Lord's hand on this king. The end of verse 5, God made him prosper. Verse 8, his fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt. And remember, this is before television or the internet or social media. The end of verse 8, he became exceedingly strong. Look at verse 13, the end of verse 13. His army had mighty power. And his reign is really summed up in the end of verse 15. So his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped until he became strong. So an amazing king with an amazing reign. Our children would say today, a fairy tale reign. But something happened. Something happened. After this long, amazing, successful, prosperous, powerful reign, something happened. Verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. What happened to Uzziah? Pride happened. We read in verse 16, because of all his accomplishments, because of all his military conquests, because of all his possessions, when he was strong, when he was at the pinnacle of his reign, when he was on top of the world, his heart was lifted up. In other words, he was filled with pride. Now, how did Uzziah display this pride? We read in verse 16, this pride showed itself in him wanting to burn incense at the altar of the Lord. Now, it doesn't seem like such a big deal to us. I mean, he wants to worship, right? And that's a good thing. But in this context, it was a big deal. Because according to the Old Testament law in the book of Leviticus, God had decreed that only the priests were to burn incense on the altar. It was part of the strict regulations that God had given for worship and service in the temple. And we read in verse 16 that his heart was filled with pride to his destruction. It reminds us of the words of Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18 that says, Pride goes before destruction and arrogance before a fall. Continuing on in verses 17 and 18. So Azariah the priest went in after him, that's after Uzziah, and with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. So you've got Azariah and 80 priests, so 81 total. Verse 18, and what did these 81 men do? And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord. So they're pleading with Uzziah, Uzziah, you can't do this. 
This is our duty as prescribed by God. So think of this scene, 81 men trying to stop the king, trying to plead with King Uzziah. Now surely if a delegation of 81 came to one of our houses and asked us to do something, that might cause us to at least reconsider, right? But in terms of King Uzziah, verse 19, Then Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. So when confronted with these priests, when confronted with God's law, what was Uriah's response? We read in verse 19, he became furious, he became angry. You know, Uzziah's probably thinking, guys, this is Uzziah you're talking to, King Uzziah. I've been doing this for about 52 years. I've defeated nations. I've built towers. I've constructed cities. I've invented all kinds of military weapons and armor. I've managed a huge army. I own numerous animals and lands. I think I can handle this. This isn't rocket science for me. But it was never a question of ability. It was never a question of whether Uzziah knew how to offer incense. It was not a question of ability. It was a question of appointment. Because God had declared that the burning of the incense was to be the function of the priests and the priests only. And look at verse 19. While he was angry with the priests, in the midst of all that pride and anger, God judged him. And we read in verse 20, And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out, because the Lord had struck him. You know, we read in the first part of the chapter that the Lord blessed him. The Lord made him prosper. The Lord caused his fame to spread far and wide. But here, towards the end of the chapter, we read something else. The Lord had struck him. And in verses 16 and 17 and 18, Uzziah didn't want to get out of the house of the Lord. But the end of verse 20, we read, he hurried to get out of the house of the Lord. How does the story of Uzziah end in verse 21? King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. So a fairy tale beginning turns in to the most tragic of endings. Because Uzziah did not heed the command of the Lord, he was punished. And it's not just that he was punished, but he was punished in such a way that for the rest of his life, every day, dwelling alone in that isolated house, he would be forced to remember the severity of what he had done. You know, we see throughout the Old Testament that God took the worship, God took his worship very seriously. Anyone who came into his presence, into the temple, into the house of the Lord, who was not willing to abide by his standards, faced the consequences. You know, some of you may be familiar with the story in Leviticus 10 of the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, about whom we read, they offered strange or profane fire to the Lord. And as a result, fire from the Lord went out and devoured them. 
And Uzziah also, because he did something he was not supposed to, because he did something that God had decreed he was not supposed to do, but only the priest was supposed to do, we read in verse 21, despite all the good that he had done, despite everything that he had done for the nation, in terms of military and infrastructure and prosperity and blessing and peace and security, because he had gone against the command of the Lord, verse 21, he was cut off from the house of the Lord for the rest of his life. Now you're probably thinking, uh, it's not very encouraging when you think of coming into the presence of the Lord. It's not exactly what I had in mind coming to here this morning at church. But remember, I promised you two stories. That's the first story. There is a happy ending to Uzziah's story, but not in the way you might think. And the happy ending to Uzziah's story doesn't occur in Second Chronicles chapter 6, but it occurs in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 6. So if we can turn there, Isaiah chapter 6. Another man who also came into the presence of God in the house of the Lord, but experienced a very different result because of his meeting with the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6. And look at how Isaiah begins this narrative of his experience in the house of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died. Yes, that is the same Uzziah that we read about in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. So Isaiah begins his narrative of his experience in the presence of God by telling us it was the same year in which King Uzziah died. Now, there are very few things in the Bible that are dated in relation to someone's death. Usually things are, related, are dated in relation to someone's birth. So why does Isaiah date this particular incident in relation to Uzziah's death? Well, I believe the reason is this. You have King Uzziah, a king who had reigned for 52 years, a king who had brought security and blessing and prosperity and progress to the nation. But in an instant, because of his transgression, because of his wickedness in the house of the Lord, he was judged. And in that instant, everything that he had built up came crashing down. So the nation suddenly finds itself without an experienced leader. There is confusion, there is fear, there is uncertainty all around. Uzziah, the one who had been the source of security and direction and power, was gone. And in such a time, Isaiah is telling us in verse 1, I saw the Lord. In other words, when our nation, Israel, was going through the worst possible time, when we were the most vulnerable as a group of people, when we had all but given up hope, when we had lost the king of our land, I saw the true king, the king of the universe. When the earthly king of our land was put off his throne, the real king was revealed to me. And I believe what Isaiah is saying is sometimes it takes a terrible situation for us to take our eyes off of earthly powers and hopes and securities to focus on the real power, the real source of hope, and the real source of security. Yes, Uzziah was an amazing king. 
He was a wonderful king. He did so much for our land. But as the saying goes, even the best of men are men at best. So how does Isaiah describe the Lord that he sees in verse 1? Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. But not just that I saw the Lord, I saw him sitting on a throne. A throne is reserved only for kings. What else does he say? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The Lord is in a position of prominence. He is far above everything that contaminates or defiles. And look at the end of verse 1. The train or the hem of his robe filled the temple. In other words, this king, his presence is an all-pervasive presence. His presence extended to every part of that place. There was not one part of that temple where God's presence did not fill. Verses 2 and 3. Above it, that is above the throne, stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Seraphim are an order of angelic beings. And the reason they covered their face is they dare not gaze directly at the glory of the Lord. Feet are probably a symbol or a sign of impurity. And them covering their feet is them acknowledging that they know that they are impure in the presence of a perfect God. And it says they flew. They flew in service to the Lord. But look at what they are crying out in verse 3. And one cried out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So these angelic beings, and we read the same thing in Revelation chapter 4, they are continuously crying out, proclaiming the glory and the holiness of the Lord. And holiness is repeated three times to emphasize his separation from and his independence of everything else in creation which is imperfect, but he alone is perfect. In other words, it is an acknowledgement of who God is. His very nature is his holiness. See, holiness is not something that God decides to adopt at a certain point or a characteristic he decides to act like for a certain time. It is the very essence, the very fiber of his being. And the second part of verse 3 says, The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, looking around, it may not seem that way now, but the, it conveys the idea that ultimately everything, God will use everything in creation for his purposes and for his glory. As we are told in Colossians 1.16, everything that was created was created through him, but also for him. And in verse 4, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So the sight is so awesome, the words are so magnificent, that it even had an effect on the very physical structure of the place. So how did Isaiah see God when he came into God's presence? He saw God as mighty, exalted, lifted up, glorious, majestic, and holy. This chapter starts with a vision of who God is. Because I believe that's the first thing we need to recognize as we come into the presence of God. What does it mean to come into the presence of God? Firstly, it means that we have a proper recognition of who God really is. 
not an understanding of God that's based on what we think He is like or what we would like Him to be like or what popular opinion around us says He should be like, but an understanding of who He is based on what is revealed to us in His Word. And if you think back to King Uzziah, that's what he didn't recognize. He didn't seriously take the holiness and the majesty and the glory of God. Even when the priest tried to warn him by telling him, Uzziah, this is God's decision that you should not offer incense. This is not just our decision, this is God's decision. He refused to listen to it. Instead, he became angry. So that's the first question for us this morning. Do we recognize who God really is? Yes, God is a friend. Yes, God is a shepherd. Yes, God is a father. Yes, God is loving and compassionate. And in fact, we're going to see those things in this very passage itself. But many times, that's the only picture of God that people want. Well, that's just one side of the story. That's just one side of the coin. Because before we experience God as a father, as a friend, as a loving shepherd, as compassionate and merciful, we have to see Him as the holy, exalted, lifted up, glorious, powerful, all-sufficient, all-knowing One. The King of the universe, greater than King Uzziah, who created all things with His Word, and who can make all things cease to exist with just His Word. That's who Isaiah saw in verses 1 through 4. But being in the presence of God doesn't stop with just having an understanding of who God is. Look at verse 5. So I, that is Isaiah, said, Woe is me, I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So what is Isaiah's response to being confronted with who God really is? Well, Isaiah says there in verse 5, I'm condemned. I'm doomed. My life is over. I don't deserve to have seen this mighty, exalted, glorious, majestic, awesome, holy, lifted up one. The King, the Lord of hosts. But why does Isaiah say that he doesn't deserve to see God in this way? Well, again, the answer is there in verse 5. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In other words, Isaiah is saying, the reason that I don't deserve to see God is because I'm a sinner, and I live among sinners. I have broken God's laws. I have fallen short of His perfect standard, and so have these people that I live with. Now again, looking at this today, we might think, Oh, talk about a problem with uh, self-image. Come on, Isaiah, you, you really can't be that bad, right? I mean, you got to think positive. But see, that's the thing. Being in the presence of God not only brings us to a realization of who God really is, but it also brings us to a realization of who we really are. And Isaiah knew that in the presence of this holy God, he was nothing but a filthy, wretched sinner who only deserved to be condemned by God. So that's the second question for us this morning. Not only do we truly recognize who God is as we come into His presence, but do we truly recognize who we are? Sinners who deserve nothing but His judgment. Wealth doesn't matter, position doesn't matter, education doesn't matter, possessions don't matter, background, heritage, none of that matters in the sight of the King of the universe. 
When we stand in front of this awesome God, no matter what we might think is to our credit, no matter what is great in the eyes of the world, based on how they measure us, in front of this God, Isaiah reminds us, we are like mist. The Bible says we are like a vapor. We're like grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. And the Bible also makes it very clear what is the punishment in Romans 6 verse 23. For the punishment or the wages of sin is death. Now also notice there in verse 5, Isaiah does confess that the people he is living with are unclean, they're sinners. But where is the first woe? The first woe is upon him. Woe is me. Isaiah is saying, first of all, I stand condemned. You know, many times it's easy to uh, compare ourselves with others, right? Well, I know I'm not, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as you fill in the blank with the person. But the Bible says God never measures us in relation to other people. God only measures us in relation to Himself. And when we compare ourselves to Him, no matter how good we are compared to anyone else, we all fall tragically short. Well, thankfully, Isaiah's story doesn't end there. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. Verse 7, And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged or cleansed. In other words, in the midst of God's holiness, in the midst of His power, in the midst of His majesty, in the midst of all His glory, we also find His grace. You know, sometimes maybe for those of us who have grown up in the church, we're familiar with the Bible, we can sometimes make this false dichotomy of God that in order to see God in His grace, we have to go to Matthew. Because from Genesis to Malachi, God really wasn't loving or gracious. The love and grace comes from from Matthew to Revelation. Well, that's not true. Right here in the midst of His holiness, in the midst of His glory, we see a wonderful picture of His grace. Because while the Bible does say that God is holy, the same Bible also says that God is love. God is compassionate. God is gracious. And just like holiness, love and compassion and grace, those are not things that He decides to put on for a certain while and then put off again. It's the very essence of who He is. So we see in verses 6 and 7 that Isaiah is forgiven. He's cleansed. The coal touching his lips from the altar is a symbol of that, followed by an explicit declaration in verse 7. Isaiah, your sin is taken away. You have been made whole. You are clean. Now, what did Isaiah do to be cleansed? Nothing. He just stood there. The angel flew to him. The angel took the coal. The angel touched it to his lips. Isaiah contributed nothing in that process. Because that's what grace is. When something is done for us that we have no hope of doing ourselves. See, the angel didn't tell Isaiah, All right, Isaiah, I want you to take one of these coals. It's really burning hot, but you got to do this. And stretch out your hand and somehow try to reach God. And if you can reach Him, then you can be forgiven. You know, that's what pretty much every other religion in the world says, right? What we have to do to get salvation. But the Bible tells us what God has done 
to bring us or to give us salvation. The only thing that Isaiah did was that he confessed he had fallen short of God's perfect standard and that he deserved God's punishment. You know, these verses also bring to our attention another truth. Sometimes we wonder, particularly as Christians, should we emphasize God's holiness more or should we emphasize God's grace and love more? And there are even churches in the Christian world today that characterize themselves or maybe others characterize them based on this distinction, right? Oh, that's a holy church. You have to be perfect to go there. Or that's a grace church. Do whatever you want and go there. Nobody really cares. Well, both sides have it wrong. It's not a question of whether God's holiness or God's graciousness is more important. God is perfection. So all His attributes are in perfection. God is not like us where we say, that person is usually nice, but sometimes they're mean. Or they're usually mean, but sometimes they're nice. It's not that way with God. He is 100% holy. He is 100% love. We don't get to choose the attributes of God that we want. And I think that this passage is a perfect illustration of how both His holiness and His grace work together. I can't think of another passage in the Old Testament that shows God's holiness in a better way than this. But I also can't think of another passage in the Old Testament that shows His grace in a better way than this. So when it comes to God, it's not a competition between grace and holiness. Both of them coexist fully. So this morning, do you want to experience God's love, God's forgiveness? I know many of us here already have, and we are God's children. And I believe Isaiah was God's child too when he had this vision. But this reminds us that although we are God's children, we are still in need of God's cleansing. Because as we live in this world, we still sin, we still make mistakes, we still stumble. No matter how long we have known the Lord or what we have accomplished in our spiritual journey, we still need His forgiveness while we live. We never reach the point as Christians while we live on this earth that we are beyond the need of God's grace and forgiveness. And many of us are familiar with those words in 1 John 1.9 where John writing to Christians says that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us. But I believe this incident is also a beautiful illustration of salvation. Perhaps there is uh, some here who you are not a child of God. Well, this passage shows you how you can become one. You can become one if, like Isaiah, you are willing to confess that you have broken God's commands. In your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds, you have fallen short of His perfect standards. And the Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and that God will by no means cast out any who come to Him. And even though this passage doesn't mention the name of Jesus, since these events took place before Jesus came into this world, it's because of what Jesus did by dying on the cross, by taking our place, by paying the penalty for our sin, that God was even able to forgive Isaiah. And that's how God forgives us. The Bible says that because of what Jesus did, God doesn't look at us as us, but He looks at us through Jesus who paid the penalty for us. And like Isaiah, you don't have to do anything to receive salvation. Isaiah just stood there and received God's forgiveness. Because the Bible tells us that salvation is not of effort or good works. It is all about what God has done us. 
Now, why couldn't King Uzziah have experienced this? Well, he could have. But remember, he came into the house of the Lord. He came into God's presence with pride. Pride regarding his position as king, his accomplishments as king, his fame and popularity as king. And throughout the Bible, God makes it clear that he is opposed to the proud. 1 Peter 5, 5, God says, I am opposed to the proud, but I give grace to the humble. You know, there's not many things in the Bible, uh, there's not many things that are mentioned in the Bible as things that God hates. But there is one list in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17 of seven things that God hates. And the very first thing mentioned in that list is a proud So Uzziah's problem was he didn't have a proper understanding of who God was and he didn't have a proper understanding of who he was as king. So Uzziah thought that because of who he was as this great king who had accomplished so much, who was so popular and famous, he thought that he had special privileges beyond what God's holiness allowed. And the Bible makes it clear that like Uzziah, if we also don't come into God's presence with humility, then instead of experiencing His love and grace, we also will experience His wrath and His judgment. We're going to conclude this morning in verse 8. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8. So Isaiah has this wonderful vision of the Lord. He has been cleansed. His sin has been forgiven. Verse 8, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I, that is Isaiah, said, Here am I, send me. So Isaiah hears the Lord's voice and he promptly responds. And in Isaiah's case, the response was to be God's faithful messenger to the people around him by proclaiming the message that God had told him or God was going to tell him to proclaim. Because being in the presence of God doesn't just mean that we have a proper understanding of who God is. Being in the presence of God doesn't just mean that we have a proper understanding of who we are, but finally, being in the presence of God also means we have a proper understanding of what God wants us to do, and we willingly do it, we obey it. What Christians would refer today to today as God's will. And today we know God's will through His Word. And again, that's where King Uzziah messed up, isn't it? God had revealed that he wasn't supposed to do something. Remember the priests, 81 of them pleaded with him, King Uzziah, God has revealed to us and to you that this is not something you must do. Putting it in language for today, this is not God's will for you. But Uzziah was stubborn. He refused to listen and he did it anyway. So that's the third question for us. Not only have we recognized who God really is, not only have we recognized who we really are, but do we know what God wants us to do? Do we know what He doesn't want us to do? And are we willing to do those things? You know, that's why we read and study the Bible. That's why we go to church. That's why we pray. That's why we have fellowship with other Christians. So that we can know more about our life, how we can live our life according to God's will. And you notice here in verse 8, Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord and his response is, well, let me think about it. I don't know. Or I think sometimes we can even hide behind, let me pray about it. Well, Isaiah says here, Lord, this is what you've revealed for me to do. The only thing I've got to do now, I've got to do it. Here am I, send me. 
And I believe that the reason that Isaiah was so prompt in responding to the voice of the Lord is not because the task the Lord was asking him to do was very pleasant. In fact, we're not going to go through those verses now, but if you look at verses 9 to the end of the chapter, basically God is telling him, I want you to go proclaim this message, but you know what? The people aren't going to listen. So in other words, I'm asking you to go and undertake a mission which I am telling you is in many ways going to be a failure. So it's not that Isaiah was being asked to do something fun or something pleasant. Then why was Isaiah so willing to do it? I believe it's because he had the proper understanding of who God was and the proper understanding of who he was. Because unless we have a proper understanding of who God is, unless we have a proper understanding of who we are, there is no way we are going to be able to do what God wants us to do. So what does it mean to come into the presence of the Lord? Does it simply mean that we come into a building or a church or wherever else that might be? Does it simply mean that we sing some songs? Does it simply mean we pray or we hear a message or we have fellowship? All those things are good. We need those things. But all those things, I believe, ultimately must be helping us to do these three things. Because based on this passage and Second Chronicles 26 and the story of Uzziah, I believe being in the presence of God means three things. Number one, you have a proper understanding of who God is. Number two, you have a proper understanding of who you are. And if you have a proper understanding of who God is and of who you are, then you can experience God's compassion, God's forgiveness, God's love, God's mercy. You know, as one of the contemporary songs says, if His grace and His mercy is an ocean, then we're drowning in it. But remember, just as great as His mercy and His love are, so great also is His holiness and His wrath. So if we are not willing to recognize who God is, if we are not willing to recognize who we are, then we are going to suffer the same fate as Uzziah. may not be through leprosy, but the Bible says that God's punishment, God's judgment will be on us. And once we recognize who God is, once we recognize who we are, finally being in the presence of God means we recognize what God wants us to do and we are willing to do it. That was the story of two men. Both of them came into the presence of God in the house of God. Both of them experienced the presence of God. But one went away condemned and destroyed. The other went away forgiven and blessed. And the question for us this morning is, which one are we?